Go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 5 this morning. If you're using the church Bible, you'll find that on page 4, Genesis chapter 5. And we're going to read the entirety of the chapter, which on the surface, you may think there's not much here. And yet I hope you'll see there is loads of theological riches for us in this passage. We are looking at Genesis 5, and we're going to read verses 1 through 32. And I know you're going to find it helpful to have your own copy open and to be reading along with me this morning. Let's pray as we come to the preaching of God's word. Our Father, again, we ask in dependence on you and humble reliance on you that you would do what only you can do in the hearts and the minds of your people through the scriptures this morning. You have said that as the rain comes down from heaven and waters the earth and makes it bring forth in bud, providing seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so shall my word be that proceeds out of my mouth. It will not return to me void, but will accomplish the thing for which I sent it. And so, our God, we pray that you would accomplish that for which you would send your word out in every life represented here this morning. We pray that you would speak and that you would make us to hear the voice of the Good Shepherd, our Savior, Jesus Christ, that you would speak and that you would make us, your servants, to hear and to listen and to believe and to hide it in our hearts that we might not sin against you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Genesis chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, and this is obviously connected to Genesis chapter 4, and there we looked last week at the genealogy of Cain in contrast with the genealogy of Seth, the two cities the city of man, the city of God, the city that men built in human pride, and the city that God builds by his grace for his glory. And we are picking back up now in the genealogy of Seth in Genesis 5. And this is God's word to us this morning. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God, male and female. He created them and he blessed them and named them man or mankind, when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 75 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years, 
Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. This ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word to us this morning. Well, I'm sure that I am not the only one who has had conversations throughout my lifetime with people who seem to love to brag about their pedigree. They love to brag about what kings or queens or nobility or doctors or lawyers or some other successful group of individuals were in their genealogy. And whenever I think about it now, whenever somebody starts to tell me about their history and there's nothing wrong with loving your history, there's nothing wrong with being thankful for those people that God singularly worked in, whose lives he worked in, and being grateful for the way that he worked in their lives. There's nothing wrong with that on one level, but I always think now whenever someone starts to brag about who's in their genealogy, who they descended from, I think about this quote from William Jay, who said, Secular nobility derives all its luster from flesh and blood, and if retraced, will be found to originate in the dust of the ground from which Adam was taken. It has little value except in the fancies of men, but our relation to God confers real and durable honor compared with which the most magnificent titles in the world are mere shadows and smoke. I love that. Jay essentially says, if people would but trace their genealogies back far enough, if they would trace their lineage back far enough, they would be able to say that it derives and originates in the dust out of which Adam was taken. And what's interesting about that is that the Bible is a book full of genealogies. It is, you've probably spent most of your life skipping them. You've probably purposefully skipped over those genealogies. And what I want to say this morning is that there is a divine wisdom in why God put those genealogies. At the very beginning of the Bible, God tells us the very first genealogy is the genealogy of the heavens and the earth. This is the book of the genealogy of the heavens and the earth. Where did they come from? How did they get here? Why are we here? Who created everything in this world? Where did it derive from? And then the rest of Genesis is a book of genealogies. And you find genealogy after genealogy. And then you find genealogies in the book of Numbers. And you find genealogies in other places in the Old Testament, especially in First Chronicles and elsewhere, in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. And then... You find one grand genealogy as we come to that period of revelation, the new covenant era when God is revealing that he's about to fulfill all things in Jesus, and there is a genealogy. And it is the genealogy of our Lord Jesus, and it ties all the genealogies together. 
and you suddenly say, I understand why our God put these in the scriptures. It was to prepare us for the coming redeemer. It was to tell us that God would fulfill his promise to send a redeemer. Genesis 3.15, born of a woman, born under the law, that he would redeem us from the curse of the law, that God would fulfill his promise to send a redeemer. And so as we come into Genesis 5, the first question that we have to ask is why are we met with this long list of obscure names of people, many of whom we know nothing about, with lots of challenges to us living this side of the ancient Near East, with lots of challenges to many of us who are more of the scientific, intelligent type, who maybe have listened to secular science for many, many years, say, wait a minute, I know one thing, people don't live that long. Well, um, always assume that Moses was at least as smart as us. The same Moses that wrote this, the same Moses that wrote Psalm 90, who told us that God shortened it to 70 or 80 years, which is the average lifespan. And so as we come to this genealogy, we have to step back. We have to get a bird's eye view. We have to say, now, what is God teaching us in Genesis 5? How is this pertinent, pertinent to my life spiritually? What is the spiritual impact of this genealogy? And I think we really understand it when we see just two things. God is building his city, and he is doing it in two ways. One, he is doing it by preserving true religion in the midst of a world that has turned away very rapidly in rebellion and depravity. And then secondly, he is doing it by way of redemption. He is doing it by preservation. He is doing it by redemption. Everything in this chapter screams to us preservation and redemption. God is at work. God is preserving. God is keeping. God is redeeming. God is at work. In order to understand the genealogies, we have to step back and we have to be able to say, the infinite and almighty creator God is orchestrating all of this for his purposes and for our good. And so what we want to see this morning in this first lengthy genealogy, this godly line that we see God preserving and redeeming, is that God is a God who preserves in the midst of corruption and depravity. You know, the, the genealogy of Cain as we saw last week, is a genealogy of corruption and depravity. It is men living for self. It is men cultivating and, and seeking after dominion. It is men building cities and exploring and colonizing for self. It is man, in all of his arrogance and pride, trying to reconstruct the garden in his own strength, apart from God's promise, saying, I don't need redemption. I'll do it myself. Look how innovative I am. Look how, look how wise I am in my own opinions. Look what I can do. I don't need God. And against that background of depravity, God is silently at work. And he's at work knitting together in the womb of Eve another son to replace Abel. God is at work preserving. He's preserving his promises. He's preserving his worship. He is preserving a people for himself. And notice that Moses, as he begins to unpack this, gives this to us again. It's very interesting, isn't it, that in verse 25, and 26 of chapter 4, he tells us about this godly line, Seth and Enoch, and men call on the name of the Lord. They're praying. They, they are worshiping. Cain's descendants are making weapons of war. Seth's descendants are worshiping. They are trusting the Lord. 
And then Moses does something interesting. He, it's sort of like he recapitulates this genealogy. Notice 5.1 that he doesn't just keep going. He doesn't say to Seth, a son was born. He called his name Enosh and to Enosh and everything else that he says in chapter 5. He now steps back and Moses, in a sense, wants us to see, in, in a sense, the more nuanced contours of what God is doing within this, this new offspring and this new covenantal um, genealogy. Notice 5.1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. Now, you might say, why, why does he do that? He just, he's already started that. He's already told us about Cain and his descendants. And what he's doing is he's telling us about the generation of Adam who God set apart for himself. And he says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. It's almost like he goes all the way back to Genesis 1.26 and says, God made man in his own image, dignified. It's, it's, it's strange. It seems like he's starting over again and saying, here's the thing about man that you really have to get is that man is not an animal. He is made in the image of God. He is made in knowledge and righteousness and holiness. He is made to have communion and fellowship with the creator in a way that no other creature can. There is, he leads with the dignity. And, and you think, okay, why are you leading with the dignity if you've just told us about Cain and all his descendants and their wickedness? And he tells us, male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them mankind when they were created. But then notice what Moses does in verse 3. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness. You know, that's one of the most difficult things for me as a dad, is to realize the amazingly precious and wonderful children God has given me as a dad. And then to realize they're made in my image. That's painful. (laughs) Everything I don't like about me is in them. They are like their dad. People used to tell me I was so bad when I was young. They used to say, you're going to get it back tenfold. After our third son, Anna and I are like, that's it. Three sons, let's just stop. I see see a pattern, a trend. We don't want to get to ten. Um... The Bible is very clearly telling us about the humiliation of fallen man. It's not the same Adam who is having Seth as the Adam who was in the garden having fellowship with God. It is depraved Adam. It is fallen Adam. It is Adam who has, by his disobedience, marred the image of God for himself and for us and has twisted it and perverted it, who has defaced the image of God on all of us. And so Moses is telling us that here's the tragic state of man. The tragic state of man is, yes, God made him in his image. And yes, God endowed him with blessing, with marriage, with a wife, with a world that was filled with the goodness of God. And yes, God blessed man and told him to be fruitful and multiply. But now the tragedy is that man is multiplying and he is multiplying with people in his own image. And his own likeness. And you know what? That's exactly who Cain was. Cain was a son in the image of Adam. Cain did what he did because he fell in his father and fell with his father and received the guilt and the condemnation and the corrupt nature, the sin nature from his father. And and Moses is again reminding us that there's no escaping that. No amount, I want to say this this morning, no amount of healthy eating, no amount of exercise, no amount of pampering can ever allow you to escape 
the realities of sin and the fall and the miseries of this world and passing on a corrupt nature to your children. You know, we baptized this morning. We baptized the children of believers this morning, not because they're good and innocent, but because they need to be cleansed with the blood of Jesus. The baptism says they need to be cleansed, that Christ, by his spirit, needs to cleanse away the corrupt nature that is inherited from the parent. And notice that Moses tells us when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his own image. So what, what at the outset of this, this is not a genealogy of hope at the outset. This is showing the bleakness, the bleakness of the fall. It's showing us what, what things really are like. And yet, God is at work preserving for himself a people who will worship him in truth and who will carry on the promises of the gospel and who will teach their children and instruct them. God is at work preserving in the midst of this. Notice that we're told that he named this son Seth. Now look back in chapter 4 when Adam and Eve were first told had Seth. We're, We're told that she named him Seth saying, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. So Seth's name means place or appoint or give, gift. God is giving Adam and Eve another seed. Now we know that from that seed, the Redeemer is going to come. Jesus comes from Seth. We know the the 30,000-foot bird's eye view tells us this genealogy is all about Jesus God is going to fulfill his covenant promise. God is going to bring the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. God is going to keep his promise. God is not going to let the inventions of man and the strategies of man. You know, it's interesting. You almost get this contrast. Cain goes and builds a city, names it after his son. He and his descendants are all wicked, do all kinds of worldly and wicked things for self. And God is over here silently laughing and frustrating the plans of the wicked And God is fulfilling his purposes by giving Adam and Eve another son. God is saying, I have promised, I will make good on my promise. I will bring the Redeemer into this world. I will redeem a people for myself. I will again be worshipped, and I will do this all by grace. And so God is preserving in the face of the corrupt image of man. And also, and this is the very glaring thing here, God is preserving in the face of death. Um, I know you really want to talk about how they could live this long, so let's do that. Let's just get that out of the way so that we can get that hurdle gone. Um, I think there are numerous reasons why God allowed the, those of the um, pre-Diluvian era before the flood to live as long as they did. One of those is that God wanted the earth to populate. You can have a lot of kids if you live that long. That's a very obvious answer. Um, You can develop and learn things over time that they wouldn't have time to learn without previous civilizations. What about Neanderthals? They had 800 years to figure a lot of stuff out and to develop civilization. I also think that God wanted them to feel the burden of sin and to long for a redeemer. I think that part of the reason God allowed them to live as long as they did was that they would feel 
the burden of the fall so that they would cry out to the Lord for redemption and that he would show how long-suffering he is and how merciful he is. I think that when God shortens, and you notice that there's actually a decrease until you come to Methuselah, there's a decrease. God is shortening. Even in this, he's shortening, shortening. Next chapter, he shortens down to 120 and then to 70 and 80. That's a mercy from God. But it's also teaching us the futility of life, that even though man would live and even though in God's common grace man would continue, because God had said to Adam, in the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and dying you will die, God is, in a sense, making good on that promise that man cannot escape death. No matter how much man wants to try, no matter how many inventions, no matter how many medical um, advancements happen, man cannot escape death in that refrain. And he died. And he died. And he died. And he died is meant for us to think, I am going to die. Um, Jonathan Edwards used to say in his early resolutions, he resolved always to think upon his death every day of his life. It's actually not a morbid thought. That's a good thing to do. It teaches us our frailty and our fallenness and our humanity. Um, you know, some of us have had loved ones die very suddenly. Um, and we need to be reminded of that. That's reality. No matter how many advances, no matter how much grace God gives an individual, because Adam, I believe, received the grace of God through the promise of redemption. Seth, all indications teach us that Seth received that grace, Noah, and yet each of them died. But what God is doing is God is preserving, even with that pattern and even with that sad reality. God is essentially saying, I will take away the sting of death. I will preserve the truth even in the midst of a people that can't extend their lives forever. I will do what man cannot do. I will be the great preserver. That is an enormous comfort to us because as we sit in affluent America and we watch Fox News and we watch CNN and we complain about what's going on in the world and leadership and we don't like the things, we forget that God is preserving his people. God is everywhere sustaining his people. God does what God needs to do to preserve his church in the world. Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And our comfort when we look at a genealogy like this is that God is always at work, even when it seems very small. And, and, and one of the things here that I've never seen before, um, and John Calvin makes this point that, Clearly, all of these men here would have had lots of other children. We're actually told they had other sons and daughters. And, and he actually makes the point that they would have had whole peoples. And yet we have no reason to think that any of them were redeemed. Just this little remnant of people in this chapter. Just one. Now, there may have been more. But we have no reason to believe that the world was worshiping God and everybody was giving him praise. The Bible says that it's always just a remnant. There's only a remnant ever that truly worship God, that truly believe the gospel. This is a remnant. It is one offspring mentioned in this grace line. It is one law offspring. It is not by flesh and blood. That's, that's a big principle here. You know, the Apostle John says that. Um, he says, as many as receive Christ, to them... 
he gave the right to become children of God who believe and who are born not of flesh, nor of blood, nor of the will of man, but of God. They are born of God. God is preserving his people. God is pouring his grace out on these men and on their children. And that helps us have a healthy assessment that at the end of the day, God is the one that is at work and God is the one that's preserving and God is to be called upon and worshiped and trusted for that. We are to depend on him. We heard this morning in Sunday school that it is not only quite possible, it is often likely for churches to trust in good administrative gifts, in, in programs, in structure, and, and a church can do all the demographics and a church can position itself and it can grow, and that's the scary thing. And it can grow and it can grow and it can grow and it does it all in the arm of human strength. But there is nothing in this chapter about anyone who is initiating anything before God is preserving and showering his grace on these generations. Um, the difference, and it's very interesting if you contrast this genealogy with Cain's genealogy in chapter 4, the difference, as one writer said, is that the center of gravity of the lives of the men in this chapter, the center of gravity of their lives is God. That's the difference. That God is the center of gravity of their life. That they lived as those hoping in the redemption that he has promised. They lived as recipients. And so secondly, we see that this is a line of redemption. Now, as you read through this and, and you think, well, okay, you got these long years and you got these, these, this one had these sons and daughters and he had this one and he lived this long and then he died. You have these little time bombs. And the first one, notice, we're told in verses 18 and following that Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and and then verse 21, when Enoch had lived 75 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 375 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not. They couldn't find him. And he was not. For God took him. I always, I always thought it would be pretty interesting if you could transport yourself back there and right after God bodily transports Enoch to heaven like he did Elijah. Um, imagine all his descendants. Where do you go? They're out scouring in the woods. What happened to Enoch? I don't know. We've been searching for weeks. <laughs> we have no idea what happened to him. He must have run off. He's out there in the wilderness. <laughs> now, what's the point? What's the point? Why does God mention this? Well, there's a contrast, isn't there? And he died, 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 and he was not. Um, God had determined that Enoch was, would, would be better fit to be in glory than here on earth. And so he bodily transported him to glory. Now, it shows forth the resurrection of the body, doesn't it? Enoch and Elijah, the point. What's the point of them going to heaven bodily? It's showing that God redeems the whole person, that God redeems people's soul and body, that there will be a resurrection, that we will dwell with God bodily, that we will not be disembodied spirits floating around with harps and little angels from Cracker Barrel. We're going we're gonna to have bodies. We're going to be 
Our body will have a zip code. We will be in glory. We will be glorified. Paul makes a huge deal about this in 1 Corinthians 15. That's the point. God is showing redemptive consummation. God's showing that those who trust him, who trust in Christ, who rest in the work of Jesus, who live for communion with God, who live as Enoch did by faith. The writer of Hebrews tells us by faith he walked with God and he was not because he pleased God. Those who trust Christ and long to live closely to the Lord in fellowship and prayer and communion. And, you know, one of the things that's interesting here um, is that um, Enoch is not busying himself in Christian service. This is a really important point. It doesn't say Enoch busied himself in Christian service and he was not. It doesn't say Enoch served on as many ministry teams and committees as he could and was not because it pleased God. It says Enoch walked with God. That was the description. The description the description of the man who was bodily transported to glory was that he walked in close fellowship and communion with the Lord. His heart was in heaven, as it was said of Richard Sibbs. My dad just reminded me of this quote. His heart was in heaven before he was in heaven. Before his heaven was in his heart. I'm sorry. His heart was in heaven before he went to heaven. Enoch was longing for fellowship with God. He was longing to walk with God. And so God is giving us a prelude. He's giving us a prelude into the fruit of redemption when he tells us about Enoch. And then notice that the other big one, and everything is moving to Noah. Really, this genealogy is all about Noah. This is the, the land bridge between Adam and Noah and what God's going to do with the Noahic covenant and securing redemption and securing a world to send a redeemer into. And, and it's all moving down to Noah. And so we see that Noah's father was a godly man. Verse 28, when Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, which means rest or comfort saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall be, bring relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Now, huge point. In the covenant family, you know, we've, we've witnessed a covenant baptism. Um, one of the dangers that we have in churches where we baptize the household of believers is that we can sort of think, and I've heard this so many times, well, there are covenant children and we're all just rocking our way to heaven. Just rocking our way to heaven. And, and the children are wandering. They're out living like pagans. That was me. Out in the world. Rebelling. Rejecting the gospel. Not repenting. They're covenant kids. That's not the picture we're to take away from this. The picture is that these are parents who are raising their children to know the Lord. And God is giving grace to the children to respond to those promises. Lamech is acting in faith when he names his son. Even the naming of his son was an act of faith. He knew that God had promised to send a redeemer who would, who would take the thorns of the cursed ground on his brow. He didn't see it like we see it, but he knew that God would send the redeemer. The thorns that the ground was cursed with that the Lord Jesus would wear on his head as the sin bearer when he hung on the cross, removing the curse of the ground, the sweat, the sweat that was part of the curse of Adam as he worked the ground that Jesus would experience when he sweat great drops of blood working for our redemption. As the second Adam, God would send a redeemer who would undo 
the curse, who would turn it into a blessing, who would redeem creation, that at the end of all of this, the goal is not just for you individually to be redeemed, but God is going to make a new heavens and a new earth, and righteousness is going to be there, and there's not going to be a curse on the ground. Jesus redeems creation. He doesn't redeem everybody. He redeems those that trust in him, but he's going to remake creation. That's the, the whole biblical picture is the new heavens and the new earth coming down and the Father remaking this fallen world and his people dwelling forever in glorified bodies. And Jesus accomplishes that. And Noah is a type of Christ. And we're, we're told many things about Noah. We're going to see in the weeks ahead all the details about how God deals with Noah. But here's the big thing. Noah's father, Lamech, is trusting the promises of God when he names his son. His son will be told, believed, Hebrews 11, by faith, Noah prepared an ark for the saving of his household. He didn't know. They had never seen a worldwide flood. He knew that God's word was true. He knew that a redeemer would come. He knew that God was destroying the world because God said he would. And he acted in faith, and he lived by faith. These are men and women of faith. Now, I was teaching a Bible study this past week and talking about Abraham offering up Isaac, and um, you realize that none of us could do that if God did not give us a supernatural measure of grace and faith. What Abraham did was supernatural. To be able to offer up the son of promise through whom all the promises were to be fulfilled and to say, God told me the nations are going to be blessed in my offspring. Redeemer's going to come. It's going to come from me and Sarah. He says it's through Isaac. Now he's telling me to offer him up. It is absolutely remarkable what the life of faith looks like. And God is highlighting for us now Noah and Noah will be a type of our Lord Jesus, and Noah will be a preacher of righteousness, and Noah will walk in faith. And yet, notice this in verse 30. Noah died. Notice that it skips over everything that you're going to read in the next couple chapters. And it says, his father named him in faith. Noah clearly lived in faith, and then he died. Now, what that means for us is that the most important question we can ask ourselves every second of every day of our lives is, am I living by faith in Jesus Christ? Is, is what motivates and animates me a desire to know the Lord Jesus, as Paul said, to count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish? Is that the, is that, now, it's not. When you ask yourself, you're going to say, no, that's not. Because if you say yes, you've got deeper problems. That's not the driving influence of every second of your life. That's why we confess our sins. That's why we seek to repent of our sins. That's why we hate the war that we feel within. But a believer is one who has experienced the grace, the same grace that Enoch got, the same grace that Noah got, the same grace that God lavishes on his people in Christ. And he says, I want to know him more. I want to grow more. I want to be free from sin more. I want to be more heavenly minded. I want to be thinking about glory because the end of your story and the end of my story is, and he died, and she died. 
That's the end of your story. And she died. And he died. And so what our God would have us do is examine our lives and say, you know, am I, am I seeking to live, as we heard last week, in the kingdom and the city of men? Am I too comfortable here? You know, I, I hear the way I say things. I hear the way others say things. And I often think, when I hear statements of security or comfort, we've forgotten that this is not our home. This is not our home. Everything about this line in Genesis 5, these, these men are saying, this is not our home. This is not it. Don't get too comfortable. I think also there's an application to us as parents, and I want to say to those of you who may have grown children who are wandering, pursue them. You know, I was converted in my 20s. My dad faithfully pursued me. Pursue your children. You're not going to love them into the kingdom of God by not pursuing them with scripture. You're not going to love them into the kingdom of God by not warning them. You won't. Pray for them. Pursue them. If you have little children, be diligent in training them, setting, modeling a life of faith for them. You know, I, I think that there is a correlation between the godly parenting and the conversions, they saw their parents trusting God by faith. That was a powerful, powerful instrument toward their conversion. It doesn't change their hearts, but it's powerful. When you see someone walking by faith, that is powerful. When you live in the home with someone that is trusting God by faith, that is powerful. If you're single, exhibit that to the world. Show forth what it is to live a life of the faith in the midst of a world that doesn't trust God. They may talk about God, but they don't walk with God. They don't know God. A world that is the city of man and all of its inventions and strategies and plans. And I hope that you will go. I hope that you will go to the one to whom all these men look to by faith. I hope that you'll go to the one who gives rest for the soul. You know, that's... That's really why we're told that Lamech named Noah what he did. Jesus says, come to me. Come to me, and I will give you rest for your souls. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest. You will find rest. I love that quote by Bunyan as I close. As Bunyan um, is writing in Pilgrim's Progress and, and Christian has the burden and he finally gets to the foot of the cross and the burden rolls off and into the tomb and he says, he has given me rest by his labors and life in his death. He has given me rest. The Lord Jesus travailed under the wrath of God. The Lord Jesus took the flood waters of God's wrath on the cross to give you rest for your soul. Look to him in faith. Let's pray. Our God, we do pray that you would give us grace that we might see your preserving hand as you raise up faithful congregations, as you preserve the truth of the scripture in this fallen and rebellious world. We pray that you would give us eyes to see what you're doing. We pray that you would give us attention to the details of scripture to see how you've done that throughout the generations and redemptive history. We pray, our Father, that you would give us grace, that we might be men and women who experience your grace and your redeeming mercy in Christ in our lives, that we might be like Enoch, that it might be said of us that we walked with God, 
We pray that you would not allow more days and years to go by in which we live in prayerlessness and in which we live in unbelief. We pray that today would be the day of salvation for those that don't know you. We pray that, Lord Jesus, you would give everyone present in this room rest for their souls, rest from the guilt of sin and rest from its condemning and corrupting power. We pray these things in your name. Amen.